We are fortunate today to have Dr. Gordon McDonald here to share with us. I first started reading Dr. McDonald's articles and books back in the late 80s, uh, in the mid 90s when I was convening college pastors from all over the country for annual conferences. Uh, Gordon is one of the guys that I invited to speak at one of those uh, events. Then shortly after coming to Christ Church, I asked him to come here. I asked him to meet with the elders and deacons. I asked him to meet with staff. I had him meet with seminary students and other pastors in the area. I think he's got a wealth of experience from being a pastor for 50 years. He's also been the president of InterVarsity. He was the president of World Vision. He's worked with World Relief. He's an editor-at-large at Christianity Today. Uh, I have appreciated Dr. McDonald. He brings a lot. I'm excited to have him here today to share with us again. They told me that I shouldn't say a word until my face came up on the screen. (laughs) So last night, the face that came up was George Clooney, and I thought that was a pretty good deal. (laughs) Gail, my wife Gail and I are just delighted to be here. I think this is our third visit to Christ Church, and each time we've gone away feeling richly blessed by the way you have received us. And even here this morning, an hour before most of you got here, to be with the 25 or 30 people behind the scenes and up front who are preparing for our worship experience today, watching all of you and and seeing your generous spirit and the way you greet people for the first time has really impressed us. So I want to thank you that I've been able to be up here this morning and talk for a few moments about some things that I find as a Christ follower to be very, very important. I'd like to read to you a paragraph from the New Testament, from the book of Acts. It's a passage of scripture I've gone back to over and over again, mainly because it's the words of a pastor to the leadership of a congregation. What's more, it's words that he thinks as he speaks them may be the last words he will ever say to these people. There's a little snippet in one of Shakespeare's plays where he says, the tongues of dying people enforce attention. In other words, when someone is on their deathbed, you better listen to anything they might have to say. Well, Paul wasn't on his deathbed, but he was at a point in his life where he thought, this will be the last time I will see these people that I've raised in the faith. So you want to listen when he says that. And toward the end of that statement, which is rather long, comes this paragraph. And at the end of it, one sentence which I really would like for us to hear because it bounces us into the remarks of the morning. Paul says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all of those who are sanctified, which is an old word that you might say to all of those of you who are in the faith. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. In other words, I've not been doing this for the money that's involved. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of the people I work with. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work that we must also help the weak. Remembering the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these next words are the only direct quote we have of Jesus 
in all of the New Testament letters. So Paul picking this statement must carry some significance with it. And this is what Paul says, remembering the words of our Lord Jesus himself, who said, quote, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I can't imagine how many times I've read that line. And each time I go back to it, something more seems to ooze out of it to reflect upon my own Christian journey, which now is almost 80 years in length. It is more blessed to give than to receive. First key word, blessed. It's a word which has an enormous elasticity to it. To be blessed is to experience the favor of someone whom I love and highly regard. In this case, the favor of God. It is more blessed, God's favor, to be a giver rather than a receiver. Then notice in this statement that Paul has kind of boiled all of Christian living down to a simple two words of complete opposite. In effect, what he's saying in this statement, Jesus, Paul quoting him, is you're either a giver in life or you become or you are a taker. I think Paul, if he were talking to us about this today, might suggest we're all born kind of takers. We have to learn to be givers. And some of us through life will learn slowly but surely the importance of being a generous giver. Some of us will never quite get it. But here's Paul speaking to these leaders, and he, in effect, is saying to them, teach your congregation to move, to convert from being takers to givers. How does that happen? When I was thinking about remarks this morning, I recalled a paragraph that comes out of one of the biographies of St. Francis of Assisi. There are hundreds and hundreds of biographies, and this is one of those stories which has endured. The writer says this about St. Francis. Where am I here? When Francis went to the villages, preaching and calling people to repent, he always carried a broom to sweep out the dirty churches. Now, most people, if they were in the sandals of St. Francis, would have been happy to go to a church or to a group of people and preach to them, to give them words. I've spent a lot of my life as a pastor giving people words. And sometimes it's been very satisfying, but there are times when I said to myself, I've got to be able to give more than words. Francis was a person who recognized that words are important. They define the faith. They inform us about the Jesus we say we seek to follow. But the words must be followed up with a broom. Can you imagine this great old saint of almost a thousand years ago, wherever he goes, he carries a backpack perhaps with extra clothing and sandals and maybe a little food, but hanging out of the basket or the backpack is this broom. Francis, what's the broom for? Well, you never can tell when you go to somebody's church and it's filthy because no one wants to give in cleaning the church up. So I'll be the giver. I'll bring the broom. I'll clean the dirty church because words are not enough. Now, I listen to that idea, and I say to myself, okay, Gordon, 800, 900 years later, after Francis, 
What's in your backpack? What kind of a broom do you carry? And how do you use it day after day? The broom is something you don't use just on Sunday in church property, but a broom represents what you and I take into the larger world Monday through Saturday. The broom we use as we encounter the people we work with, those whom we work for and those who work for us. The broom symbolizes the kind of home we're a part of, how we give to the people we say the love we love the most. The broom stands for our contribution to the community, and Gail and I have been made very much aware this weekend of the discipline that you have all set yourself to in this church, to making sure that the community not only sees your lovely building and hears your words, but it sees your brooms. So what brooms do you bring, do I bring, day by day by day, that make me to be marked not as a taker, in the words of Jesus, but a giver? As I've thought about this, I've come up with seven words. Uh, I chose seven because somebody said one day it was a perfect number. I don't take that too seriously. But seven is what you can do maybe in the time that's allotted to you. Seven ideas on a checklist that I might want to look over on a regular basis as I go out into the world with my brooms. Before Gail and I left on this trip to come to be with you this weekend, I did what we always do when we get ready to travel. I print out a little form from my computer. It's it's a list of all the things I want to take on any trip. It's been a long time since I've forgotten everything, anything because I have this checklist the kind of clothes I want to bring, the books I want to bring, and don't forget your Kindle, and don't forget your hearing aids, and all this other stuff. It's all on the list. So these seven ideas that I have put under the symbol of broom are kind of like a checklist to look at every once in a while and say, do these in any way suggest that I am growing in this process of becoming a giver rather than a taker? For example, the first word on that list is the word encouragement. It's a word we use all the time, but I'm not sure we, we think enough about the significance of what encouragement does when we use it in the lives of the people around us. Encourage, to press courage into. When a genuine encouragement happens, it's because we press courage into some person or some group of people. And how do we do it? Well, we can do it with words, we can do it with gestures, but as the day goes by in my life in the real world, how many people, as they see me coming, are filled with courage because of things that you and I say and do? The word discourage means to suck courage out of. And we all know discouraging people, and we'd probably have to confess that at one time or another, we have been the discourager. And we have pulled courage out of people by sharp and harsh words or other kinds of ways you can discourage people. But the person who's a giver is an encourager. How do you encourage? Well, one thing to do is we we become thankful people. Another way we do it is we become people who bless others with affirmation. I see the life of God in you when you do this. I want you to know how refreshed I am that you and I have been able to be together for these moments. I love the way you do this or the way you say that. And in one way or the other, we put value on the things that other people do. To be thankful is so important. 
And when you walk through, especially the New Testament, and you see the apostolic letters where they're trying to raise new Christians into mature Christians, this idea of being thankful comes back over and over and over again. The second word on my checklist would be the word hospitality. And the word hospitality usually is used as that word which describes bringing people into one's home, making them feel comfortable, making them feel safe. Hospitality in the Bible is a major, major theme. Jesus uses that concept of hospitality when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone will let me in, that's hospitality. Hospitality is not just bringing people into my home. But in a more general sense, hospitality may be letting people into my private life. To know a little bit more about me than most of us are comfortable in letting other people know. I want you to know about the ways God has blessed my life. I want you to know about the things that I've learned, sometimes the hard way. I want to let you know about some of the things I've learned in those days when I have failed terribly. That's hospitality. To be willing to take the risk of letting other people come into the deep interior of my own life so that they can see the life and the work of Jesus in me and profit from it. I can't get past this word without thinking of a couple that I once knew when I was a university student. They're both in heaven now. They lived a few doors down from the apartment where I went to the university. And one day, as the three of us were talking, uh, they invited me to their home another evening or two for dinner. Well, when you're in college and you're doing your own cooking, you pray about such an invitation for five seconds and say yes, if you're smart. And the evening came, and I went to their home, and I sat at their table. And I must tell you, the food was incredible. But what struck me very, very quickly was something I had not expected. It was to watch these two people in their relationship. To watch this man honor his wife, to respect her, to tap her mind as he asked questions that he thought she might have perspective on. I watched the way he thanked her the way he boasted about the kind of woman she was. And then I watched the way she loved him, the way she paid attention to some of the needs he he had, the way she served him, the way she expressed in loving words her reverence for her husband, the way she listened to him and quizzed him and drew him out on things he was thinking about or maybe even troubled about. It was amazing to watch these two people. It was like watching two dancers on ice at the Olympic Games. How wonderful they were in sync together. You see, that impressed me because I'd never seen it before. I come out of a home where my mother and father did not know how to love each other at all. Our home was filled constantly with disrespect and conflict. Now I was seeing something totally different. When the evening was over, they invited me back another week for dinner. And of course I went and I saw the same thing a second time. And then the invitations became more and more frequent until, frankly, I was spending three or four nights a week at dinner time in their home. They must have thought I was starving or something. 
But every time I was with these two people, I saw the same incredible phenomena in their relationship. And it began to deeply penetrate my own heart. I remember saying to myself one day as I walked back to my apartment, if I ever get married, I want to marry a woman just like her. If I ever get married, I want to be a husband just like him. If I ever get married, I want a marriage just like that. A year or two later, I was introduced to Gail. And this became the launching pad for the marriage that we've had for 57 years from now. For, for now. This was the marriage that I played off of as I saw from these two people what can happen when a woman and a man who love Jesus determined to have a home full of his presence. That's what happens when someone gives you the gift of hospitality. I could never have seen all that stuff in any other circumstance but at that table in that home where I was hospitably welcomed. A third word on my checklist is the word serve. It means to encounter people all along the way who for that moment, and, and, and be, help me on this notion, who, who at that moment are probably weaker than I am, who need somebody with a strength to walk alongside of them in a moment and help them with things they cannot do for themselves. Sometimes when we serve, we're serving out of our strengths. We're serving in situations where uh, we have something that no one else has, and we use it as a skill or a capability to serve people. Sometimes we're just alongside at the moment when somebody needs something, and I'm the next body who comes along, and I'm willing to do it. In the church that Gail and I served at for over 20 years in Lexington, Massachusetts, we were a congregation very much like you. Men and women were good-looking, who lived well, who were highly educated, had responsible jobs. One of the men in that church was a man I, I really respected. His name was Bob Ludwig. He had an incredible mind. He was a math major all the way through his undergrad and graduate years in college. Does that tell you anything about him? He was one of the brightest men at the time that I I had known. One Sunday morning, I walked into our children's Sunday school area, into the two-year-old department. And much to my surprise, I found Bob sitting on the floor with 12 or 13 children reading a Bible story. I said, Bob... What's a man with a brain like yours doing with two-year-olds? Oh, he said, I love two-year-olds. It's a joy and a thrill to read to them and watch their response and teach them to sing. I love this. I said, Bob, what's a man with a mind like yours got to teach two-year-olds? He said, well, simply three things. God made you, God loves you, and God doesn't want you to hit anybody. (laughs) That's a man who's a servant. Or let me take you back to the Bible and read to you a paragraph of a man who becomes a servant at a point in Paul's life where he's the weaker brother. Paul writes to Timothy about this man whose name is Onesiphorus. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me 
and he was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me because Paul was in jail. And those were days when there were no cell phones and computerized records, and Rome's a huge city. Who in the world would know where Paul is? But Onesiphorus sets out to discover where he is, and apparently he finally finds him. He searched hard for me until he found me. You know very well in how many ways Onesiphorus has helped me. That's all we know about Onesiphorus. And yet he goes down in the Bible as one of the most servanthood-like people you'll ever meet. How would you like someone to write something like that about you? How would it be if we were known in the Christian community as people who know how to serve from our strengths and from our weaknesses? So I put down on my list that people who are givers are not takers are people who learn how to serve. Let me give you a fourth word on my checklist. It's the word compassion. That's a big Bible word. It's one of the unique qualities that the Christian movement has that the world had rarely ever seen at that time. The world into which Jesus came, the world into which Paul preached the gospel, the world into which the first church was formed, knew nothing about compassion. People in those days were hard-nosed. They did not care about people, even in their own homes. Men did not know how to care for their wives. Parents didn't know really how to care well for their children. There was no compassion because compassion means being able to see, to feel, to hear, to relate to the pain of another person. You see compassion on virtually every page of the four Gospels when the story of Jesus is being told. Jesus drips with compassion. And today we are a movement of people called Christians who may on some occasions be known for our compassion, but all too often are known for our lack of compassion. Simon Peter is a disciple One day he and the other 12 and Jesus are walking down a road through Jericho, the city of, on their way to Jerusalem. There's a crowd on either side of the road. In that crowd is one man in the ditch who's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He was apparently disabled in the most serious of ways, maybe blind also. And what does Peter do? He turns toward this man, and I'm using my own language, Shut up. Don't bother the Lord. He needs time for more important people than you. He doesn't have time for folks like you. Doesn't sound like very much of a compassionate person. For three years, Peter has been walking along the side of Jesus, watching one compassionate event after another, but he still hasn't internalized it. It's still not a part of his character. Then several weeks later, after that terrible, hard-nosed encounter on the road through Jericho, we're now in the book of Acts. The first church is coming into formation. Peter is one of the early church leaders. And in Acts chapter 3, I'll transliterate it, it simply says, one morning as Peter and John were headed toward the temple for daily prayers, 
They encountered a man sitting at the gate in the dirt and the dust. And Peter sees this person. Something has changed because Peter no longer is the brusque man who tells this guy to get out of his way. But Peter notices him. He looks at him. And he says to the man in the ditch, look at me. And he says to him, silver and gold, I don't have. I'm pretty broke myself. But I do have something else you may need more often. Rise from the place where you are and walk. What's going on there? It's compassion. Something has awakened in the depths of Peter's heart that makes him see people he never saw before, to have feelings for them he never had before, to have words to know what to do. Something has brightened up, has exploded in the soul of Simon Peter after walking for three years with Jesus. It suddenly comes to him. He gets it. He's no longer a taker. He's become a giver. And the giving is shown in his compassion for this man who needs the touch of a follower of Christ. We need to regularly remind ourselves that going out into the larger world Monday through Saturday after we've had our experience with the believers in church, that all along the way, Jesus will have people in one way or the other that we know or don't know. And he anticipates in that moment, compassion will be awakened. And we will see these people in their suffering. Compassion has not always come easy to me. And there have been some stunning moments when I've had to learn the hard way. Many years ago, when I was on the board of an organization, most of you will know World Vision, I went to Ethiopia for 10 or 12 days in the midst of one of the horrible famines that they were having where tens of thousands of people were dying of starvation. One morning at 5 a.m., I was out in a field where there were several thousand Ethiopian people all lined up waiting in rows to see whether they could eat that day. And one of the filters that was used to determine whether certain people would eat because food was not in full supply was, is there any member of this family group that has the signs of starvation and malnutrition? And there was a doctor that I'd met for the first time going up and down the rows, examining each family unit. And when he saw someone who was malnourished, the family would be admitted to eat that day. I said to him at one point, what are you looking for when you inspect a family? He said, well, I usually check the youngest in the family unit because they're the ones that would be most quickly to succumb. He said, I, I pinch the skin to see how quickly the skin will return to its normal color. I check the eyes to see if there is any disease fluids in the eyelids. I crumple the hair in my fingers to see whether the hair is too fine because the hair will show malnourishment very quickly. And he named two or three other things. And then he went on inspecting families. And I'm following along somewhat detached from all this. I eat well. Why should I worry about this? And suddenly the doctor reaches down into a family and he pulls out a child that may be 10 or 11 months old. And he swivels around and he puts the baby in my arms. And he says, you make a decision. 
You decide right now whether this family will eat today or not. I could get tears telling you this story 25 years later. But that was the day I learned a little bit about compassion. The fifth word I'd put on my checklist is the word mercy. Mercy is a little bit different than compassion. Mercy is what I give when I meet someone along the way who needs a second or a third chance, who's failed terribly, who's lost everything, who's drifted away from any kind of faith in Jesus, someone who's become stone-cold card, someone who's hurt people, and they're beginning to come to an awareness of who they are and what they've done. Who shows the mercy? Our world is filled with broken people today. Where do they go if they awaken to the kind of person they have become? Where do they go when they need a second chance? Can I suggest to you, it's supposedly to Christian people who are givers and not takers. Even the church itself ought to be a place where people can come and receive the gift of grace and forgiveness, mercy, a second chance. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. As time goes by during the evening meal, a woman enters and sits at the feet of Jesus and begins to wash his feet with her tears. The Pharisees are all put off. They're repelled by this. They say to themselves, does anybody know what this kind of woman is? Jesus, do you know what kind of woman is touching your feet? And Jesus turns to Simon and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Ever since I've been in your home, you've not washed my feet. You've not given me an honorable welcome. You haven't recognized me in any way, shape, or form as an honored guest. But since this woman has entered this place and come to my feet, she has not stopped anointing my feet with her tears and acknowledging over and over again repentance from what otherwise was a pretty sleazy life. And he turns to the woman and he says, Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Go your way. Do you hear the mercy in those words? Are we known today in the 21st century, we evangelical Christians, are we known as people of mercy? On my checklist is the word faithfulness. I picked that word because it's a word that describes to me participation in a selected group of people which we all ought to have. Many of us in this room are, first of all, a part of a family. We're married. We have children. Maybe we have grandchildren. Some of us are single. And our family becomes a small group of people who share life together. Others of us are parts of a few other groups. But in the Christian understanding of human relationships, there is always a group of people around us to whom we really need to be faithful. 
We just don't drop in and out of them depending on whether there are better things to do. We are faithful to them. We care for each other. We support each other. We love each other. Paul talks about faithfulness when he says to the Philippians, if you've gotten anything at all about following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. How would you like to be a part of a group that was like that? That demands faithfulness. It demands a kind of commitment that this is my larger spiritual family. I will be faithful to them. I will give the power of my faithfulness and not just take when I'm with these people. Well, finally, the seventh word on my checklist is the word sacrifice. And with the word sacrifice, I'm talking about what it is that we give to people that has been hard-earned And we give it sometimes at the risk of a little pain, of denying ourselves a little bit. It's it's easy to give the convenient gift of money, of other material things. It's a more challenging thing to give when it hurts. In the book of Luke, Jesus is in the temple in his last days before the cross. He's situated at a place where he's watching people put their money into the offering plates. And all these Pharisees who have considerable wealth are putting their offerings in and you get the impression that Jesus is not impressed. And then suddenly, this is my imagination running, he beckons to the disciples and he says, come over here, I want you to see this. Do you see that group of people lined up to give their offerings? Yeah, they say, look at so-and-so, so-and-so. And he said, I don't want you to look at them. I want you to look at that woman. Watch her as she approaches the offering plate. And while the other people are putting in these huge baskets full of coins that make lots of noise, it's this woman who puts in two little tiny pennies that are hardly worth anything in our currency. And Jesus says to his disciples, do you see what she has just done? She has given everything she's got. That's what you call sacrifice. And apparently she trusts that in her sacrificial giving, God will take care of her, and the sacrifice will be rewarded. So you have seven words, seven ideas that it seems to me flesh out the words of Jesus when he has said, it is better to give than to receive. I'd like to send you on your way this morning reviewing those seven words. Maybe we could call them your brooms. I could call them my brooms. Am I known as an encourager? Am I hospitable? Do I serve? Is my heart filled with compassion for the needy? Do I give mercy when people are broken? Am I a faithful person? Am I a sacrificial person? In such ways, I show 
that Jesus is deeply in my life. For the people that Jesus wants to surround himself are those who are graduating from taking and moving into giving. That's our call. And each of us may want to think about that for a while. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you set giving in motion because you first gave to us. You gave us a magnificent creation to live in. You gave us your son, Jesus. You gave us a way to live. And you promise us a future gift of eternal life. Thank you for being the model of giving we need. Help us to respond in kind, to be kind to the givers that Jesus wanted us to be. Amen.